I find it fascinating how people can experience the same thing or idea or be exposed to the same person and yet respond very differently. So many people love the Star Wars movies, but there were those who found them boringly predictable. Uh, there were a lot of people who loved the Avenger and the Avatar movies, but there were others who hated them. When Joanne Kathleen Rowling first pitched her idea for a series of books on Harry Potter, 12 of the publishers she approached thought, not a very interesting idea, or it probably won't make money. And so all 12 of the publishers said no. So J.K. Rowling took her proposal to another publishing house that, like the idea, said yes, published a book en route to selling more than 600 million copies of the Harry Potter book series, which has become the best-selling book series of all time. So people can be exposed to the same thing, the same idea, the same person, and yet respond very differently. I remember when I was 15 years old, I was sitting on a grassy hill at a Christian summer camp as part of a, a youth group. There were about 10 of us. And our camp counselor was explaining to us how Jesus didn't come so that our lives would be boring or uninteresting, but came so that our life would be fuller and filled with joy. And I remember how one of my peers, a teenage girl seated not far from me, kept interrupting our camp counselor, saying sarcastic things about his talk, saying rude things about him. Our camp counselor must have left that grassy hill feeling really discouraged about how the talk went, but he painted, in my imagination, a very vivid picture of Jesus, which would go on to change my life and the direction of it. Today, as we continue our series, Encounters with Jesus, we're going to be looking at how two people meet Jesus, and yet they have very different responses. So in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, we read these words in the gospel. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Let's pray. Living God, through the work of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our eyes and open up our hearts so that we perceive Jesus for who he really is. Help us to know what Jesus has done for us. And help us to respond in a way that is worthy of him. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 36, we read that Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to have dinner at his home, at a dinner party. If you were here a couple of months ago when we launched this series... 
You may recall that we looked at John chapter 3 and featured someone named Nicodemus who was also a Pharisee. And in that message, I said, when we hear the word Pharisee or someone described as a Pharisee, we think of someone who is self-righteous, narrow-minded, and judgmental. But I explained that in Jesus' first century world, where virtually everyone believed in God's existence, Pharisees were highly respected as people who were seen as those who took their relationship with God really seriously, who were experts in God's law. It was fairly common for Pharisees to invite a distinguished rabbi over to their home for dinner to entertain them. And so this is what Simon is doing here. Now, while some of the Pharisees in Jesus' day were priests, most of them were what we would call lay people. And so this would be like the chairperson of a church board inviting a well-known speaker after Sunday service to, to join him or her for lunch. This is what's happening here. And when Simon is able to secure Jesus's presence in his home for this dinner party, uh, Simon must have felt, wow, this is going to really impress people. This is a real privilege. Now, in verse 36, we see that Jesus and the other guests at this party are reclining by a table. In this time and in space, people wouldn't sit on chairs at, at, at dinner tables like ours, but they would recline on their left side, and then they would reach for food on a low table and, and eat with their right hands. And their feet would be pointed away from, from the, the table. It was also customary in this time and place for the host to leave the door of his house open so that people who were passing by on the street could step into their house and come into what we would call the living room area of their home and sit on the outer edges to eavesdrop, to listen in on the conversation happening. And so for his dinner party, Simon had left his door open. But no one expected that this particular woman would show up at his entrance. Yeah, someone, when she entered, dropped a book or something. Or, or they just were shocked and they gasped. This woman is described as one in town who lived a sinful life. And the, the Greek word that's used here to describe her life isn't one that would mean that she had sinned by, say, not paying off her credit card bill or waving her middle finger at someone who had cut her off in traffic or one night having too many glasses of wine. The word translated sinful woman here in the passage is one that suggests that she was either a prostitute or that she was well known for her adulteries in town. This woman walks into Simon's home. She pauses nervously, collects herself, and then walks over to the most important guest at the dinner party stands at his feet and then begins to weep. She begins to cry. 
And she gets down on her knees and the tears are, are falling down her cheeks, off of her chin, and onto Jesus' feet. And she begins to kiss Jesus' feet. And you can be sure that at this point, no one is saying, could you pass the bread? <laughs> and then this woman does something that no respectable woman would do in her world. She undoes her hair and lets it fall down. You know, when we're watching a movie and a woman is alone with someone, there's romantic music playing in the background, and then she undoes her hair and just sort of lets it sway. We know what's about to happen, right? We're anticipating a love scene. It's an act of vulnerability. Well, that's not exactly what's happening here. But when she lets her hair down in front of Jesus and in front of the others, it's an act of real vulnerability. And she begins to dry Jesus's tear-soaked feet with her hair. And then this woman is wearing around her neck this alabaster jar of perfume with a little opening at the top which causes her to smell wonderful. And she breaks the neck of this delicate vase never to be fixed again so she can't, she can't fasten the the vase together again, and she pours out this perfume, which according to Mark's account of this same scene, is worth a year's wages. And as this is happening, Simon the Pharisee is intently taking in what's going on. He is in the dead silence of deep concentration. And he's thinking to himself, if Jesus really were a prophet... He would be able to discern that the woman who is touching him is a sinner. And he wouldn't let her touch him. If he's a prophet, he should know she's a sinner. And if he knows she's a sinner, he should push her away and apparently doesn't have the moral backbone to do so. So either way, whether he doesn't know she's a sinner or knows she's a sinner because he's not doing anything to push her away, he's not a prophet. He's not really a man of God. Well, Jesus is about to demonstrate what kind of powers of discernment he really has to Simon. As he looks at Simon and says, Simon, that's a very interesting thought. Simon's head snaps back. And Jesus says, let me tell you this. There were two men who owned a certain money lender, money. One owed him 500 denarii, which was equivalent to about 20 months of wages. So if we translate that into our Canadian context at $50,000 a year, it would translate into $83,000. And the other person who owed him money owed 50 denarii, which translates into about two months of salary, or $8,300. Neither of them, according to Jesus, was able to repay the money lender. Now, in this world, unlike our own, when you can't pay off a debt, it's not that you just get a bad credit rating or you declare bankruptcy. No, in this world, what happens to you if you cannot pay off your debt? You're heading to prison. You're going to a debtor's dungeon. And then Jesus says, the master 
turns to both of these debtors and says, your debts are forgiven. Who would be more grateful, the one who owed 83,000 or the one who owed 8,300? Simon rubs his chin. He's wondering, could this be a trick question? He thinks about it, thinks about it, and thinks, no, I don't think it's a trick question. And he says, I suppose the one who owed him more? And Jesus says, you are correct in your judgment. And then Jesus says to Simon, Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't offer me water for my feet. In this first century Palestinian world, with the unpaved roads and, and the, the, the dusty pathways, and people walking around in sandals, people's feet would become mired in dust and in muck. And so when you went to someone's house, they would typically provide water for you, perhaps hire a servant to wash your feet, to prepare you to enter their home. Jesus said, Simon, when I came to your house, you provided no water for my feet, but this woman has rained down tears on my feet. Simon, when I came into your house, you did not give me the customary greeting of a kiss, but since I've come in, or since she's come in, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. And Simon, when I came into your house, you gave me nothing to freshen up, but this woman has poured expensive perfume over my feet. And I tell you, though this woman's sin has been great, she is forgiven. And the one who is forgiven much loves much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus turned to the woman and said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Amen. Now, we don't know what it was about Jesus or what he had done for this woman to cause her to be so deeply moved that she was willing to humble herself, not just before Jesus, but before important people like Simon, in front of her neighbors who had judged her, in some cases may have exploited her. We don't know why exactly she was so profoundly moved to humble herself before Jesus and these others that she wept in their presence, she sobbed, she knelt before Jesus, allowed her tears to soak his feet, let down her hair, broke open her alabaster jar of perfume, which was worth a year's wages. People were probably thinking, not only is this woman sinful, but she's also crazy. She is financially totally irresponsible. She didn't care what people were thinking because she was so deeply grateful to Jesus that she expressed her gratitude to him by humbling herself and, and being extravagant. Now remember, when Jesus looked at Simon, as Simon was judging him, Jesus described two people who owed a certain money lender certain amounts. One, 83,000. The other, 8,300. And I pointed out that in their world, if you couldn't repay the debt, you were headed for the same place. You were headed for a debtor's prison. And so in one sense, whether you owed 83,000 or 83 million or 8,300, you were facing the same future. You were going to a dungeon. You were going to prison. And whether or not 
We have sinned in a scandalous way like this woman with her sexual escapades. Or we have sinned in a subtle, respectable way through pride or through a sense of entitlement or being self-absorbed or or, or lacking compassion. In a way, it, it doesn't matter whether we've sinned in a scandalous way or a subtle, respectable way because either way, our sins cut us off from God in this world and in the life to come. Our situation is the same, so we need God's mercy just as much, regardless of our scenario. And when we realize that God, the invisible God, became a human being, became one of us, lived a perfect life, and then offered his life on a cross so that he could pay off our debts before God, our moral debts... No matter what we have or haven't done, we have every reason to be unbelievably, weepingly, and extravagantly grateful to God. And in some cases, the whole direction of our life will change when we realize what God in the person of Jesus has done for us. When this woman takes her alabaster jar hung around her neck and breaks it. She is not only giving a year's worth of wealth, which is probably the only money she has as a poor woman, but as I mentioned before, that alabaster jar would have had a little opening on the top and would have made her smell lovely, wonderful. And if, in fact, she was a sex trade worker, she was breaking the very thing that enabled her to do business, that enabled her to attract men. She was destroying her capital, which meant that she would have to find some other way to make a living. And when we encounter deeply the mercy and grace of Jesus, it can literally change the whole trajectory of our lives, and in some cases, our career path. Some of you would know Carlos. He's part of this particular worshiping community. Carlos is very involved here. You may not know this part of his story, and he's given me permission to share it. Some years ago, Carlos went through an absolutely devastating divorce. A divorce which caused him to lose not only his wife, but his children, his job, his home. He ended up on the streets homeless. And he turned to heroin for solace. He bounced from homeless shelter to homeless shelter to homeless shelter. And then one day, Carlos came in contact with a community of Christians called Servants, composed composed with people who were part of our community, among others. And, And this group showed Carlos friendship, They made him feel like he belonged, made him feel loved. And so, as God came to him through this group, Carlos began to experience emotional and spiritual healing and even physical healing. Because a number of folks at Servants who were part of Tenth, he started coming to our community, to our services, committed his life to God, and was baptized. Some of you were at his baptism. Some of you have seen photos of his baptism as he's got his hand raised joyfully. 
Carlos is deeply grateful for God's work in his life and, and serves God generously. He helps to lead our hospitality ministry here at 10th. He's also one of the key leaders for our Oasis ministry, which serves meals for people who've fallen on really hard times, in some cases who are homeless. And if you were to ask Carlos, why do you serve at Oasis? Carlos would say, because when I look at the person seated across from me at the lunch table, I'm seeing me. I'm seeing me in a previous chapter of my life, and I recognize how God has mercifully delivered me. And I am so grateful. And as a result of that gratitude, Carlos serves God and others generously and extravagantly. But you don't necessarily need to have a scandalous past or some kind of dramatic crisis in your life to be deeply and profoundly grateful to Jesus. Think of someone like Mary, who we looked at last week, along with her sister Martha. Mary of Bethany was really grateful to Jesus, in part because he let her as a woman sit at his feet and learn from him. She let Mary take the position of a student with him as the rabbi, which was supposed to be a position reserved only for men. Mary was also deeply grateful for the, to Jesus because Jesus had literally raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And last week I mentioned that Mary, as she spent time with Jesus, had this sense that he was about to die. He had been talking about it, but it didn't sink in for the other disciples. But Mary intuited this. And so at a dinner party just before Jesus went to the cross, Mary gets up and she takes a pint of very expensive perfume worth a year's wages. And you know what she's about to do, or you can anticipate what she's about to do. But why does she do this? Yes, to prepare him for his death, but, but why does she have this particular idea? It's almost certain, because she has heard about what this sinful woman has done for Jesus. And Mary has likely thought, I may not have a scandalous background. I may not have been a sex trade worker. I may not have committed adultery. But I am a sinner every bit as much as this sinful woman. I've been prideful. I've been self-centered. I've been angry and bitter. And I've held on to that anger and bitterness toward others. I have relied too much on my money for security. I may be a decent, respectable, middle-class person. But I have every bit as much reason to need and to be grateful for the mercy of Jesus as this sinful woman. And she wants to express that gratitude. So what, is, what does Mary Bethany do? She opens up this pint of very expensive perfume worth a year's wages. And I don't know if she wants to one-up the other woman, but she pours it not over his feet alone, but also over Jesus' head. You know, you know, take it all, all over your body. And even if from a worldly perspective, our background is one of respectability, and even nobility. We are all sinners. We're all on equal ground. 
And we have every bit as much reason as this sinful woman to be deeply grateful for what Jesus has done for us, for his grace and mercy in our lives. So every bit as much reason to respond with wholehearted gratitude and even extravagant thanks. I've got a friend named Joanna Mockler. She's an elegant, attractive woman. Years ago, we went on a pilgrimage together with some others to Ireland. And while there, I got to know her better. She shared more of her journey with me. And she's given me permission to reshare some of her story with you. Joanna explained that she had gone to this certain college, this women's university on the east coast of the States, an elite school. And then when she was a young woman, she met a person named Coleman Mockler, who at the time was a PhD student at Harvard. They would get married. Coleman would go on to become the legendary CEO of Gillette, featured in Jim Collins's book, Good to Great. Joanna explained that she was living in a certain suburb of Boston. I know it to be a, a very wealthy uh, suburb. And one day, someone knocked on her front door. She opened it up and saw a neighbor in front of her. And the neighbor said, um, you know, I live not far away. I'm wondering if you would like to join me and some of the other women in the community for a Bible study. And Joanna said, I had no interest in, in studying the Bible, but I had been wanting to get to know my neighbors, so I thought this would be a good way to get, get to know my neighbors. So I, I said, yes, yes, I, I'd like to study the Bible with you and the others. And so Joanna said, I started attending this Bible study, and I thought to myself, I am just too smart and sophisticated to believe this stuff in the Gospels. And then she said, you know, looking back, I, I, I see that was such a stupid thing to think, but I thought it. And Joanna said, as we studied the Gospels, I found myself more and more drawn to the Jesus. And I came to the point where I believed in the resurrection, that God had raised him from the dead, but I still had doubts about the miracles. And then Joanna said, one day I was in my kitchen at my counter, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I said, God, I've, I've come to believe in you, but I don't love you. Some of these other women, they, they love you, but I don't love you. And then Joanna said, spontaneously, my heart said, and my mouth said, God, help me to love you. And something came over me, and I, I fell to my knees, and I began weeping, saying, God, help me to love you. Help me to love you. And in that moment, I, I gave my life to God. I, I surrendered my life to God. And Joanna's life over time was changed. She would become a philanthropist and use her considerable wealth to support the work of God around the world, and especially those involving the most vulnerable children on the planet. When we encounter Jesus, like Simon, we can be indifferent and just sort of shrug our shoulders or cross our arms and, and walk away. Or like this sinful woman, or like Carlos, or like Joanna. 
we can really see him for who he is, receive him into our lives, take in his mercy and grace, and respond with wholehearted and extravagant gratitude. Let's pray together. If you're here, or whether you're watching online, in your heart, like Joanna's, is saying, God, I believe in you, but I, I don't love you. Help me to love you. If that's your desire. Or if you're here and you do believe in God and love God, but you long to love God more, to be more deeply grateful, and your heart is saying, God, help me to really love you. I'm going to invite you to do something in a moment to physically express that if you are able to do so. I'm going to invite you in a moment to humble yourself before God and before the people seated around you, though they're in a posture of prayer, and physically kneel if you're physically able to do that, if this expresses your heart's desire. So if you're here and your heart is saying, God, help me to love you Help me to be deeply grateful for what Jesus has done for me. I invite you to join me because that's my heart. As I kneel now, I invite you to kneel as well, right where you are. Just slip off of your pews for a moment if you're physically able to do so and kneel. And if you're watching online, if you're in a place you can do this, you can kneel online as well. And by kneeling, you're saying, God, help me to love you. Help me to be deeply grateful for what you've done for me. There's no pressure to kneel, but if that's your heart and you're physically able to do it, kneel and pray. God, help me to love you. Help me to express my gratitude to you with all my heart and extravagantly. May by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit within us, may we be able to pour out our lives as a fragrant offering to God, an extravagant offering of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.